Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Tonight, let's take a look at faith and commandments, and then we're going to look at traditions and customs and how they can either support or work against your faith and against God's commandments. So we're going to start tonight by looking at Exodus 7, which is part of the Torah portion for this week. You can turn to Exodus chapter 7. Uh, We'll start in verses 2, from verse 2 and go to verse 5. Now this is a command that we're reading about that the Lord gives to Moses and to his brother Aaron. You are to say everything I order you. And Aaron, your brother, is to speak to Pharaoh and to tell him to let the people of Israel leave his land. But I will make Pharaoh hard-hearted. Even though I will increase my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. And then when I stretch out my hand over Egypt to bring the people of Israel out from among them, the Egyptians will know that I am Adonai. So let's go through this carefully. What's required of Moses here, it's, it's something very straightforward, that he speak to Pharaoh. And that Moses say exactly what the Lord tells him to say. Moses doesn't have to be original. He doesn't have to come up even with the phrase or how he's going to start. He's supposed to say what God tells him to say. Specifically, let the children of Israel leave Egypt. It's fascinating that this is required of Moses. Because... The Lord also tells Moses how Pharaoh's going to respond. Pharaoh's going to respond with a hard heart, and he won't listen to what you say. And not only that, I'm going to do signs and wonders, the Lord says, and he won't pay attention to that. But ultimately, he'll let you go, and then Egypt will really know I'm the Lord. Now, have you ever been in conflict with someone and you didn't want to even talk to them? You wanted to avoid them. Can you imagine if you're like a conflict avoider, some call those uh, tortoises or turtles, you know, because they pull in, you know, and they hide inside their shell when there's a conflict. Now that's in contrast to porcupines who throw their quills, you know, they're ready to attack at any moment. Can you imagine that Moses is being told, go to Pharaoh, and you tell him this, and you know what? Pharaoh's not going to listen to you at all. He's going to be hard-hearted. How many of you would volunteer for that assignment? Probably none of us. Moses didn't volunteer. The Lord recruited him and said, here's the deal. I'm the boss. You're the servant. You do what I say. And Moses says, okay. So he's willing to do it. But imagine the emotions that would stir up in most of us if we are thinking, this is sort of a lost cause. I'm supposed to go as a representative of the Lord and give a word from the Lord 
to someone who's going to totally reject me and reject what the Lord says. So this tells us that the Lord has his own ways of doing things, doesn't he? And even though he may know how things are going to turn out, and he may know that along the way it won't look so good, maybe even at the beginning it won't look so good, and maybe even in the middle it won't look so good, and as a matter of fact, maybe at the end it won't look so good, but after the end it won't be okay. The Lord is not unwilling to use difficult circumstances. So if you've ever been praying, Lord, get me out of these difficult circumstances, and you didn't get an answer, uh, it could be that the Lord was just willing to use those circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Now, the, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, or we could say to Messianic Jews, says that Moses was acting with faith throughout this whole time period. And when we think about faith, it's important to understand the, the biblical concept of faith compared to modern concepts. Because some people think faith simply means like to, to make a verbal proclamation of something, I believe it, I claim it, to nod your head or yeah, yeah, to give a mental assent to something. But in Hebrew, faith... Uh, Emunah or emuna has two sides to it. The first side is this trusting God. Say that with me, trusting God. So one part of faith is trusting God. The second part is being faithful to God. So it's faithfulness. It's acting uh, in a way that reflects our trust. So wherever you read the word faith, think about this, trusting God and being faithful to God. It combines those. And and remember this, God is faithful to us. Do you agree? And so our response is to be faithful to him. We want to be trustworthy. We want to be dependable. We want to be people that he can work through. That's why what Moses was doing was an expression of faith. He was trusting the Lord, but he was acting faithfully. Have you ever had that dilemma where you want to trust the Lord, but you don't want to act? And you want to like step out of a situation rather than into a situation. Because a lot of situations feel like what Johnny Cash said. I stepped into a burning ring of fire. And I went down, down, down. And the flames went higher. And they burn, burn, burn that ring of fire. <laughs> and when you see a ring of fire in your life, isn't it normal to just want to step back? But the Lord knows something about Moses. He, like many lads, was curious about fire. Right? And all it took was a burning bush. Like, fire? (laughs) Just like some boys, you know. Any opportunity to play with fire. God is trustworthy, and we want to show ourselves trustworthy to God. So this kind of faith is, is very serious. It's, it's based on, on two things, the fear of the Lord, what we could call awe, and the love of the Lord, these two things working together. If you have fear of God, but you don't have love for the Lord, you're missing something. Because we trust and we love God, 
We follow him and we do what he commands. So we're seeing in Moses these two things at work, which is why the book of Hebrews says, by faith Moses did these things. By faith, by faith. And it doesn't just mean he had wishful thinking or he hoped things were going to turn out. Or it doesn't even mean simply that he trusted God, though it does mean that in part. It also means by him being faithful, he acted. He acted according to what God told him to do. Now compare this to Pharaoh, who ultimately gave in. How many plagues did it take to convince Pharaoh? Ten ten plagues, ultimately, before he was really ready. And along the way, there were times when he said, yeah, okay. But in fact, it took all ten plagues. And when Pharaoh gave in and he obeyed, he never did trust the Lord. And he absolutely didn't love the Lord. So don't get confused. Even acts of obedience may only be a reflection of the fear of punishment or power, not respect, not trust, not awe, not love. Now in Messiah, the faith that we have combines trusting God, loving him, and being faithful to him. And the apostles teach this consistently. Though it was a, it's a difficult subject for some people to get, that faith is more than just giving mental assent. Some people think if you just raise your hand at an event, or if someone's preaching and says, if you don't want to go to hell, come forward. Well, who wants to go to hell? <laughs> so most people are in favor of not going to hell. But we can ask, does faith require more than simply nodding your head or raising your hand or coming forward or even saying a sinner's prayer? Let's, let's try to make the answer simple. Yes, it does. That's a simple answer, isn't it? Faith may be, may be initially expressed these ways. But I've known people who raise their hands. I know people who have raised their hands at every meeting they've gone to. And they still haven't turned to the Lord and put their trust in him. They still haven't repented of their sins. They still haven't fallen in love with God and begun to serve them with all of their hearts. Biblical faith is deep and it's long-lasting. So God is looking at our actions and our hearts. He's looking deep. And that's one of the main teachings of Yeshua and his disciples. Unite your actions with your faith. This is one of the main messages of the Jewish apostles who were called to the Jewish people. They consistently said this. It's not just a matter of getting your actions right. Your actions and your faith need to be together. It's not just a matter of getting your faith right. Your faith and your actions need to be together. Unite them together because that's the nature of real faith. Now let's raise another question. Does new covenant faith include any commandments? It's a serious question. And there are many people who have different points of view, including people in the Messianic movement, including Jewish Christians, who are all over the place on that answer. And some say simply this, if you ever responded and mentally agreed that Jesus is the Messiah, 
then you're saved. They reduce it to a moment in time, and that's it. And other people say, oh, you don't even know if you're saved until the very end. Well, I think those are two very extreme positions. It reminds me of a joke that I'm not going to tell you. I'm not sure I have time for it. I'm moving on. Ask me later. Maybe tomorrow I'll tell it. It's, a, it's, a, it's about this. So does New Covenant faith include any commandments? And let's try to make the answer simple. Yes, it does. We can quote Yeshua, who has asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? Now, if New Covenant faith, if faith in Messiah involved no commandments, Yeshua's answer should have gone in a certain direction, like... Are you crazy? There are no commandments. I came to do away with them. But that's not what he says. We have to learn to make our answers his answers. We have to learn to build our responses and our theology, our understanding, our perspective on his understanding. So Yeshua has asked this, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers very concretely by reciting the Shema and the Ve'ahavta. And he puts those together, and he says that this is the greatest commandment. And so through that, we can say the new covenant affirms that we are commanded to listen to God, and we're commanded to love God thoroughly. Can you agree that that's what Yeshua said? Listen, Israel. And that listening doesn't mean just let his words go into your ear, and then out the other ear, it means listen and put into action, put into practice. And can we agree that Yeshua said that we're commanded, you shall love the Lord your God. We're commanded to love him. Isn't that an interesting thing? Many people say, well, you can't command anyone to love. Tell the Lord. He actually thinks that he can give this as a command, meaning it's non-negotiable and it's required. But isn't that interesting? Because he's looking for love. He's not looking for obedience without love. He's looking for a loving relationship. But he wants to be the Lord. He wants to be the boss. That's why he says, you love me. Thoroughly, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And then Yeshua offers a two for one. There's a second commandment that goes with it, the Vehafta Larecha Kamocha, quoting from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And that term for neighbor can be far reaching. So some people think it means your next door neighbor, it's far more than that. You can tell that by Yeshua's teaching about who acted in a neighborly way, even a Samaritan who he used as an example. So it's not, it's not limited to your neighbor on your street. It, it's, it needs to be enlarged to include even people who are very different, even strangers, even enemies. It's quite challenging to embrace that scope. It's easier, Yeshua said, to love your friends. In fact, he basically said, anyone can do that. Everyone loves their friends. Almost like he was saying, big deal. You know, that's so normal. But he said, love your enemies as well. 
But to take it another step, think about what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world. That's God's kind of love. Loving the world. And the New Testament affirms this. You and I were enemies of God. And Yeshua died for us while we were estranged from him, alienated from him, even opposing him, denying him. Every one of us. And he didn't wait until we came around. That is a super high standard. Do you agree? Now, as Messianic Jews, as Messianic believers, as disciples of Yeshua, we consider Yeshua our chief rabbi. It's not just that he was the best rabbi once. He's the best rabbi in perpetuity. Forever, he is the chief rabbi. He's the ultimate authority for us. And sometimes Yeshua's teachings are different from traditional teachings. They can be different from traditional Jewish teachings, and they can be different from traditional Christian teachings. It's very important that we give his teachings the honor and the authority that they deserve. And remember this, be careful. I brought this up last week. Be careful about what you learn from those you don't want to become like. If you want to be a disciple of Yeshua, be very, very careful about what you learn from those who reject Yeshua. The model that you choose, the teacher, the congregation, the community of faith, the sources you use, the traditions and the customs that you follow, the people you fellowship closely with, your friends are very important. It's important to line them up together in order to reinforce your faith and your faithfulness with Yeshua. Now let's look at a passage that shows an example of Yeshua's teaching and practice that didn't follow widely accepted Jewish tradition at the time. Washing hands. There were many rules about washing hands. In fact, there were so many rules, if you, didn't, if you broke the rules, it was like you had not washed your hands at all. And so this is the shortest passage. There are several Others, uh, Matthew 15 is much longer and, and very interesting. But shortest passage is Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. As Yeshua was, was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. And so Yeshua went in and reclined at the table with him. But the Pharisee was astonished to see that Yeshua did not first wash his hands before the meal. He was astonished. He was shocked. Now then, said the Lord, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Now he must have said that with a smile and a certain tone of voice because they're eating together. They're having fellowship together. And this Pharisee is open to Yeshua. That's why he's invited him to his house. Do you see? Yeshua is not just being rude. He's being provocative. Now for some people, they, they, they can't draw a line that separates those. Provocative is rude, but it's not necessarily. It can just be really to the point. 
And, and this very fastidious Pharisee, doesn't mean he's a hypocrite, it just means he's very fastidious about keeping what he understands are the required rules. And he's shocked. You're sure you didn't wash your hands? I mean, it could be that he didn't wash his hands. It could be that he didn't wash his hands the right way. Either one would be considered the same. But let's just say he didn't even wash his hands. And the Pharisee's like, oh my goodness. How could you do this? And he's expressing his disapproval. It's, and Yeshua makes like a kitchen comment. Hey, you guys, you end up washing the like the outside of, of the plates and the dishes and the cups. But the inside, you haven't even washed it all. It's filled with greed. So he switches. He's not talking about dishes. You understand that. He's not talking about cups. He's talking about people. And he's saying, you can pay attention to the external thing and not even notice that the most important thing is the inside. What's going on? That there could, you could be fastidious about some of these things and still be neglectful of the greed, the wickedness, the other things that are happening inside. And you can read Matthew 15. It's a very interesting passage that talks about what defiles a person. You can read that on your own. Now let's look, let's look at another example. This one could be difficult for some people. What about tefillin? What about, or they're also called phylacteries in some parts of the Jewish world from the Greek. Uh, I, I, I want to take you through uh, a, a simple lesson on this. Yeshua has no teaching that compares to either Talmudic teaching or Kabbalistic teaching about the importance of the technical details of tefillin. Nothing about how they're to be made, Yeshua has no instruction about what scripture should go inside. He says nothing about even the proper way to lay or wrap to fill him. Yeshua does not affirm the Talmudic or the Kabbalistic-based rules and regulations about them. And he doesn't even say that there's any particular spiritual power in putting them on. Now, this is very different from Hasidic, which is modern, a modern movement in Judaism, and Orthodox Judaism, which is also relatively modern. Uh, but it's different from their teaching and practices. Because they both have very specific rules and regulations, and they... they warn against breaking or disregarding the rules. It's important to get the rules right. But all of those detailed rules, this is very important. Listen to me carefully. All of those detailed rules are not to be found in the Torah. Not one of those detailed rules is in the Torah. So they're coming from other sources. And it's important to understand that so that you don't reach wrong conclusions. You see, the, the emphasis on all the rules and details follows a very different kind of understanding. Uh, it can be a different understanding of faith. It can say the real faith means you do all these details a certain way. If you don't do them right, you haven't expressed faithfulness to God. 
But in many cases, people will say, this isn't about faith, it's about following the law according to the rules. And it's as if if you do this particular tradition correctly, it will elevate you in God's eyes. If, if you have tefillin that are kosher according to this group and you lay it on correctly and you do it with good intentions, it's going to make you more spiritual automatically and it's going to elevate you in God's eyes and he's watching And be careful to do everything correctly, because if you don't do it correctly, he's not accepting it. Learn to do it correctly. In in fact, these days, some chases like Chabad Lubavitch uh, consider laying tefillin one of the most important commandments. I was at a, a Support Israel event a few years ago, and there were some Chabad rabbis, and one of them, as is their custom, came up to every man who looked remotely Jewish, I did, and said, uh, can we put on tefillin and pray with you? And they meant, could they put tefillin on me and pray with me? And I said, sure. I thought it'd be interesting. And so, uh, according to their pattern, you know, they, they laid to fill in. And then uh, there's this special Chabad Hebrew. It's like a combination of old Ashkenazi and modern Israeli. And sometimes they want to say Adonai, and other times they want to say Shabbat, you know, just as an example. So it's like a mixture. So uh, the rabbi said, so repeat after me. And he's, you know, Shema. And I said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Ve'ahavta. I kept going. And after it was all said and done, you know, he, he didn't know what to make of me. Until later, someone who was there, who knew us both, said to him, you know, uh, that's my rabbi. He's a Messianic rabbi. And the Chabad rabbi, a nice guy, really nice guy, was just really confused <laughs> through the whole situation. But what I've learned is one of the teachings of Chabad is this, that if you can get a Jewish man to, uh, to lay tefillin, to wrap tefillin, to wear tefillin, it's, it's almost as if you've gotten him to say the sinner's prayer for you know, evangelical or fundamentalist, and now he's right with God. So make sure you do it right, you know, wrap it right, and say the words right, because now... It's like he has been restored to God. He's Baal Teshuvah. He is now a returnee to the Lord. And he's a, it's like he's a new believer. That's the weight that is often given to this. Now, what did Yeshua have to say about tefillin? Interestingly, all that he has to say about tefillin are cautions. In Matthew 23, verse 5, 23, verse 5, he says, all the deeds, all these actions are done for other people to see. And they make their phylacteries broad, the tefillin broad, and they lengthen their fringes or their tzitzit because what's most important is they want to, they want to do it in a way that's visible. Now, even the choice of the word phylactery is interesting Because 
Phylactery in Greek means amulet. And so that can be understood two particular ways. It could be like a religious symbol that has power. But more generally, it means um, a container that has something inside of it that has spiritual power by itself because of what it is. But Yeshua says you make your phylacteries broad. So it's like he's saying, when you're doing this, it's like an amulet for you. You're doing it thinking there's power in these objects. And you're thinking, wow, it's going to make me right. And other people will see it. Now, I want you to notice something. Yeshua does not teach Talmudic or Kabbalist rules or practices. So his warning is really specific. He knows that by focusing on visible and external things, a person can miss the more important hidden things. (coughs) And he targets the temptation. The temptation is you'll use big tefillin, you'll put them on where other people can see you rather than just doing this privately. He uses phylactery, which means amulet. And then there is a real warning in all of this. Don't think there's power in these objects. They are not magical. They themselves are not spiritual. And so if your phylactery band is not the right material or not wide enough, Yeshua doesn't say, then it won't work. He doesn't even care about that. He makes no comment. It's as if he's not interested. In themselves, objects like this will not elevate you spiritually. In fact, they can pull you away from faith and faithfulness. And if you ask yourself, where in the Bible do you get all the details about what tefillin should look like and how to use them and what should go inside of them, what prayers you should say and when you should use tefillin? You can search the scriptures and you won't find answers about these details. So the answer to the question, where in the Bible, is this. Nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in Torah are these details called out. To find such details, you have to read Talmud and Kabbalistic sources. So all the detailed rules about tefillin as we know them are not biblical. They aren't Torah commands. And that's challenging because many people are saying, oh, well, I'm doing this because of Torah. But they've taken a step beyond. Do you see? I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this clear. Because this is one of those things where, where people can say, oh, now I'm more observant. And that observance brings me closer to God. It may or it may not. It may actually bring you further away from God. It may be a distraction. So what does Torah have to say about tefillin? Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 8 gives us some idea. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Isn't that interesting? Where do they go, first of all? On the heart. 
Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the way, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That's the passage. And some English translations say, uh, and, and bind them as phylacteries on your forehead. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says totafot, which is an unusual word, but it's not necessarily phylactery. And then it says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So how much detail is there in this? Very little detail, right? And yet much of what has emerged as Jewish tradition are details that have nothing to do with the Torah teaching or instruction. They are additions that have been given super spiritual meaning and importance And so this is one of the challenges. The group, the Jewish groups that have lots of rules about tefillin got them from what they call oral Torah. But oral Torah doesn't really exist. It's, it's not oral anymore, and it's never been Torah. Torah is written. It's, it's not oral. And so this is something outside of the scriptures, the actual Torah doesn't have these rules. And so those who have been um, like focused on the rules and the details, I'm picking this one out because it's so interesting as, as a detail. Uh, the oral Torah, Talmud and Kabbalah for them are elevated to a place of holiness and spiritual authority, and that's dangerous. Because it means those texts become equal to the scriptures, and in some cases, authoritative over the scriptures. So there are some people who would say, well, I, I like laying tefillin. It brings me closer to God, and it's Torah. But it's not actually Torah because the details aren't in there. So the actual appeal to authority is not the authority of the Torah scriptures. Now, this doesn't mean tefillin is, are bad or evil. They can even be neutral it's when we assign super spiritual importance to them. When we focus on details about them that are extra biblical and that in some cases are based on other esoteric texts that basically say, here's this stuff nobody else knows but us. And it will bring you closer. This is an alternative to true faith and faithfulness. And it can cause someone to be led astray. That's why I say it's dangerous. Now, if you study those texts and you think that they are authoritative, you're actually moving away from biblical faith. And that's a dangerous thing to do. So I want to say, be careful. Be very careful. And the same could be said about mezuzahs, mezuzot. If you get caught up in some of the rules and traditions that define what is kosher for a mezuzah, you're you're depending on sources and rules outside of Torah. And so you're moving away from Torah. You're elevating other rules and regulations. And I want to tell you, be careful when you do that. Now, I love mezuzahs. And the ones that are on uh, my doorways are precious to me, but I don't adhere to all the rules and regulations. For me, a mezuzah marks my house as a Jewish house. 
And it helps me identify as part of the Jewish community. It, it, it's a way of showing to the rest of my community, I'm a Jew who's not afraid to be known as a Jew. But that's it. It's not magical. Now, don't think there's some kind of special super spiritual power in Jewish objects. Don't think, I'll say this too, that there's spiritual power in Christian objects. And for some of you, it's like a whole lot easier to get this about Christian objects. You know, it could be you were raised in a high church, you know, where there was incense, for instance, and, you know, holy objects of different kinds, and and you've put that away. And you're not thinking, oh, there's a lot of power in that stuff. But now you're in a synagogue and you're thinking, oh, there's a lot of power in these other things that are Jewish. And I'm saying, no, no, no. Don't get lost in that. Don't think these things will make you more spiritual or bring you closer to God. Remember what God is looking for. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. But what if you lay to fill and write? Remember what God is looking at. He's looking at your faith and faithfulness together. He's not looking at how well you follow the teachings of Talmud and Kabbalah. Don't make that mistake about God or it'll pull you away from him. In fact, there's a risk that if you find spiritual elevation and even safety in objects, it will give you a false sense of security. And it will give you confidence in all the wrong things. And that's dangerous because it can also lead you another step away from God because you can start judging other people who don't follow the same rules. And you can say, oh, that Rabbi David at Beth Israel, he's not a real Jew because he's not teaching people to lay to fill and write. Or, or such a person can say, well, I'm more spiritual than the rabbis at Beth Israel because I'm getting together with other people and we're laying to fill in. We're teaching other people how to do it. And you know what? We're actually more Jewish than they are. Well, I hate to be so blunt, but I'll be that blunt. I'll be as blunt as necessary. Those kinds of judgments are actually signs that a person's already slipped away from biblical faith already slipped away. They've slipped away from Torah faith. They've slipped away from New Testament faith. And I can just say, danger. Danger, my friends. In, in this day of the internet and social media, you can find people who will teach you anything. You can have friends who will support you in everything. Remember last week, the story I told about the people I knew who when they came to the Lord, they were smoking pot, they were having uh, uh, mail. I told this on Saturday. I don't know if I told it on Friday. Did I? Okay, good, good. That's a good. They were pot-smoking, uh, mixed male and female naked sauna takers together as new believers. 
And if you didn't hear the story, it's worth listening to. Listen to the Saturday podcast. It's a great story. But don't be naive. You can find people who will reinforce anything. If you want to get drunk every Saturday night and go to church on Sunday and cry your eyes out, you can find a group of people that will go with you Saturday night and Sunday. Happily. So don't be naive. It's dangerous these days to be naive. Be careful about learning from sources like those that elevate Rabbi Nachman or Rabbi Schneerson to a position of great honor, of undue honor. Neither of these rabbis taught their disciples to follow Yeshua. That's their fatal flaw. Everything flows from that. Now I want to close with two examples of customs or traditions that Yeshua did follow, that he modeled for us. Uh, One actually that he modeled and one that Paul modeled. The first is in Luke chapter 4 verse 16. It says this, Yeshua went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day on Yom Shabbat, which is what day? Saturday morning. He went into the synagogue as was his custom. Say that with me. As was his custom. So Yeshua grew up where? Nazareth. And it was his custom, his habit, to participate in synagogue services on Saturday morning. Nothing against Friday night. I'm just saying. So moms and dads, you actually give a very special gift to your children when you bring them here to synagogue every week. Because it means they'll develop good habits. And these habits will help them throughout their adult life and even when they become parents. Not only that, they will appreciate you because you follow the example of Yeshua. And they will admire that. It will give them strength in the future. So it's Yeshua's custom to spend Saturday where? In the synagogue. Acts chapter 17, verse 2. This goes against many people's mental image of Paul. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is very interesting. It was also Paul's custom to participate in synagogue services on Yom Shabbat. On three Yom Shabbats. Now that's interesting for me. Paul had a custom, I think, a tradition, a habit. It was part of his lifestyle. Where would you find him on Saturdays? At synagogue. And some people could learn something from this. Uh, You come sometimes, your custom is, I come every so often. Or once a month or twice a month. In fact, some people, their custom is to be inconsistent. (laughs) right they're consistently inconsistent you can count on this they may or may not be here (laughs) now of course there are times when people can't come or they can't come consistently health issues may need to be out of town a military service may have an occasional need to do something that conflicts with your attendance those are completely understandable 
But be careful about your routines and your habits. Keep your eyes fixed on Yeshua and let him perfect your faith and your faithfulness. And so if you really want to be messianic, let him be the authoritative interpreter of all Jewish tradition. Right? And let his example be the model for you. So don't be slackers and claim to be messianic because it's not just mental assent. It's not just belief. It's faith and faithfulness. And follow the example of Yeshua. So I hope I've stirred up some things. That's my goal, is to get you thinking and understanding and working through even your impressions about different things so that you will become a diligent student of the Word of God and you will be a true disciple of Yeshua's. That will always be good for you. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the Word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a great example, for being that great example for us. We want to follow you. We want to keep our eyes focused on you. We want to follow in your footsteps. We want to learn from you. And I pray, Lord, that every stronghold, every spiritual stronghold that raises itself up against the knowledge of Messiah would be torn down and would be rendered powerless and impotent in your face. Lord, let it be that none of us is in bondage to superstitions, to traditions that are outside of the word of God. And that none of us puts our trust in things. We put our trust in you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. If you are standing by yourself, I want to encourage you to move somewhere so that you're standing with someone. Thank you, Mike Gordon, for joining me. The Lord bless you and keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.